Oh, hello, friends in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Andrew Doyle, the man behind the Titania McGrath Twitter account, a comedian and a writer. We're talking about his new book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. Free speech is one of the core tenets of a modern liberal society, and yet we're seeing restrictions being placed on it across the West. In the UK, hate speech laws have been introduced, and even America is looking at amending the amendment. So today, expect to learn what Andrew thinks about Donald Trump being removed from Twitter, whether cancel culture exists, why Miley Cyrus's genital preference is dangerous, what future humans will think when they look back on this period of history, and much more. I always love having Andrew on the show. He speaks an awful lot of sense. And if you enjoyed this, then I highly recommend that you go and pick up his book. It's a really easy, very accessible read. It's super short. I finished it in like a couple of days. And uh, yeah, if you if you like the things that Andrew does on the internet, you will love his new book. Also, other news, I made some promises around saying I'll do a, a 100K subscriber, ask me anything Q&A on, on YouTube and live streams, and we'll start these solo episodes and all this sort of stuff. Um, what happened was a couple of videos that we made about a week and a half, two weeks ago, exploded the channel and we went from under 100 to 120,000 subs. Um, so the balloons that I had ordered to arrive so that we could do like this really cool picture and have a backdrop for the episode and all that, they're still not even here. They haven't arrived yet. Um, and we're now about to be closer to 150 than we are to 100. So I don't really know how I'm going to play this, but um, thank you for the support and thank you for the patience as well. There will be a lot of new things coming. There will be these solo episodes. There will be Q&As. There will be more stuff. But um, being honest, I was just kind of trying to keep up with the workload of publishing a ton of videos to take advantage of this momentum. Apparently, when, when the algorithm on YouTube likes you, the goal is just to keep on producing content. So that's what we're spending our time doing. All that new stuff will be coming. It's just on the other side of a period of quite intense work for me and old video guy Dean. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They are the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee, so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, 
because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days, and if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. And now, please give it up for the wise and wonderful Andrew Doyle. That doesn't look like the Amalfi Coast. No, well, that's where I was last time. Mm, not there yeah. anymore. I, I don't I live in the Amalfi Coast. I, was, <laughs> I, was I thought you were just a, a gentleman of leisure now, just swanning around. No. I was bi- I was visiting there for a while while I could. I got in just before, uh, just after they lifted the lockdown, and then just before the lockdown happened again. So I literally got in just at the right time. And I'd have to say, if anyone wants to visit the Amalfi Coast, j- wait for a pandemic. It's the only time <laughs> to see it because. If you're there at any other point, it's absolutely heaving. It's impossible to negotiate. I went over to Capri, you know, the island of Capri, uh, and it's 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 horrendous. But but during a pandemic, it's fine. Like you can meander about. It's not too oppressive. There's not too many people. It's great. Lovely. You know. What is free speech? Is it the same as being able to say anything without repercussions? Oh, it depends what you mean by repercussions. So uh, if by repercussions you mean that the state can arrest you uh, and lock you up, or fine you, or you can be uh, harassed, threatened, intimidated, uh, pushed out of your job, then no, those are not acceptable repercussions in a liberal society. But if you mean by repercussions, criticism, ridicule, uh, that kind of thing, in other words, more speech in response to your speech, even protest in response to your speech, then uh, of course you have absolutely no right, because when people protest against your form of speech, they're exercising their own free speech. So that is absolutely fine as well. Yeah, I think it's actually quite simple at this point, but this is a point that is missed all the time. It's really straightforward. Uh, in, 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 a, in a liberal system, a liberal society, and this is something that, that has been completely overlooked, anyone should be able to say whatever they want, uh, and then people are able to say what they want in turn in response. And that's how, that's how it should work. So when you hear um, particularly writers for The Guardian talking about how the thing is when people talk about free speech, what they really mean is they want consequence-free speech. For a start, no one has ever said that. I mean, literally no one has ever said that. So this is an incredible, it's not even so much of a straw man. 
it's too insubstantial even to be made of straw. There's literally nobody who comes close. <laughs> it's the invisible to man, that. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the invisible man. Like no, no one, no one has ever said that that they want the right to say whatever they want without someone criticizing them back. No one's ever said that. And if they have, then they're deranged, and they're they're. It, we're talking about a fringe group of people. So that has to be put to rest. That 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 over lie. Um, so no, free free speech is the right to say whatever you want, and for people to say whatever they want back to you. Why does it matter? Because it is the bedrock of a liberal democracy. It is the it is the it is the, the foundation of all of our freedoms. There can be no other freedoms. Any any progress that has ever been made in terms of the advancement of personal liberty and, and social liberty has come through the exercise of free speech, of saying what you want, expressing your thoughts. It is the route to personal autonomy. If you can't uh, express what you what you feel about something, then you cannot develop. We cannot innovate without free speech. There can be no innovation. There has never been innovation without without the freedom to say what you want and particularly to say controversial things. That's how innovation happens. Uh, the very act of reason is typically a collaborative effort. The, the, the way that we evolve and learn is through a, a discussion with other people and expressing ideas and getting it wrong and making mistakes. And all of that is part of it. Um, so it, it is the linchpin of absolutely everything that we value if we value freedom. And that's why it is it is alarming to me that people are so cavalier about it. I mean, you hear a lot of people online when they want free speech skeptics, I call them, you know, when they when they call it freeze peach, you know, that really original pun. And they sometimes have an image of a peach frozen in an ice cube. They say, oh, look at you with your freeze peach. For a start, it's the most unimaginative. I mean, you know, they should be banned just for criminal unoriginality, right? But they they, they say this stuff. Um, but to be so cavalier about such a foundational principle is actually pretty damn disturbing. It's like they don't care and they don't realise that they are themselves dependent on on the on their right to free speech in order to to behave like dickheads they they need to have that right too um so you know it's doesn't people free, shouldn't be so clear about it doesn't free speech allow those dickheads to cause harm and offense though and other dickheads as well yeah that's the point they can i'm not i'm not here suggesting again this would be the interpretation wouldn't it oh you've just mocked people who use the phrase freeze peach uh, and therefore you're trying to shut them down aren't you you're trying to silence them you're trying to censor them no criticism is not the same as censorship I, I often think that people who, who mistake the two must be doing so willfully. They have to be. I mean, how else could they, you know, everyone knows this. Um, so I often get that as well. Like if I, when I've mocked things in the past, um, uh, people have said to me, oh, why are you having to go? I thought you, I thought you cared about free speech. I always get this all the time. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm exercising my free speech to criticize what they said. That's kind of how it works. And they can do it back to me. That's fine. It's okay. The, I, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is fundamentally there are so many misconceptions around around free speech that uh, so many basic misconceptions, you know, that, that really people should have learned about a long time ago. And and you're always having to fend them off. And I, I just like to put those things to rest. And I think I think people need to have a, 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 a sort of more sensible conception of what is meant by by the concept of free speech and so most of the arguments around this topic are dealing with straw men and they're, they're dealing with misconceptions and so if you just can just get beyond all that detritus then we can have a discussion about the actual issues because there are some very difficult issues surrounding the topic but we're not going to get anywhere if people don't know what free speech means so, and I, so that's one of the reasons i wanted to i i learned about ethics and metaethics from a buddy who's at uh, oxford uni and i'd never learned this before and what he told me was that if you have two people trying to debate ethics who disagree on meta ethics, 
the ethical discussion actually breaks down because the underlying principles that they're coming to the table holding don't support any sort of discussion on top of that. And it seems like you're trying to sort of do this here. Like, look, this is the battleground that we're supposedly playing on. Yeah. We can now yeah. have a conversation, any kind of either productive or unproductive, but at least we can have a conversation because we know the rules of the game. It's exactly right. And actually, I've been wrestling with this issue for a while now is is how do you argue against those who are incapable of argument? This is really hard because I'm all for I think we need more discussion, not less. I think we need I think one of the major problems that I think I've said it to you before. One of the major problems that we face at the moment is people aren't talking to each other, people from opposing political ideas. They're not they're not sitting down and talking to each other. So I'm all for doing that. And I will always do that. But if someone comes into the room and wants to talk, but they're not going to use play by the rules. Right. In other words, they're going to just throw insults. In other words, they're going to start guessing what they think you believe, right, which is something they always do. Uh, They're going to misrepresent your perspective. In other words, they're just arguing with a version of themselves that they've created. Uh, If they're going to do that, then that's that's bad faith. You can't you can't actually argue with someone like that. And I think I think it's really important when it comes to argument uh, that, yes, you make an effort. You may go out of your way to talk to people who disagree with you. But if they are unwilling or incapable of argumentation then don't bother and block them I, I seriously mean i think i think and you might say well you're creating an echo chamber well look someone comes in and says there are 32 letters in the alphabet let's debate well i'm not going to debate that person because you know it's clearly not the case and if they absolutely re- refuse to accept the basic premise you can't go you just can't go any further than that i had this the other day where someone on twitter was on at me saying um nobody oh you know he's saying everyone in this country just accepts that uh or, or just uses they all the time as a singular pronoun, right? We'd already passed the point of, you know, where you do it if you don't know this, the gender of the person. Uh, and that's something that's a colloquial form of the term they. But the idea that the vast majority of people do not understand they as a plural pronoun is simply not true. And the only way you would think that that is the case is if you don't know people or if you're being willfully obtuse in order to 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 win the argument. So therefore, I'm not going to debate that person. You have to accept certain premises in order to to move on. Why and one is of them it, is, is just knowing how to argue. Why is it mostly people on the right who seem to be promoting freedom of speech? Like we rarely hear the left complain about lacking free speech. Well, uh, the opposite was true when I was a child. So uh, this is this is something that I think shows us that it's not a partisan issue. You know, when, when I was a kid, there used to be. I mean, you're too young, but there were things like uh, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. I think tried to. I had a campaign to try and ban David Cronenberg's film Crash. Uh, there were um, all sorts of campaigns every now and then. Whenever there was, I mean, go back even before my time, there were campaigns against things like The Last Temptation of Christ, the Scorsese film, or, or Last Tango in Paris. Um, so there's always these sort of censorious kind of campaigns going on and say that we should ban artistic expression of one form or another. But it was always coming from the right when I was a kid, it was always, I mean, you just associate, I mean, then if you think of Mary Whitehouse, who was the famous campaigner who did the clean up TV campaign back in the, uh, the sixties and seventies, and then the video nasties campaign in the eighties, you know, in the eighties, they banned films like Driller Killer and, um, Evil Dead was banned, you know, the Sam Raimi film, uh, that was, that was banned by the, uh, by the video nasties, uh, scandal. Uh, and all of this was coming from the right. This was just the way that, because, because conservatives traditionally have a, a sort of I suppose a kind of uh, old-fashioned view of of decorum and that kind of thing, and they and, they, and, and but they all bought into this myth, uh, which was very much Mary Whitehouse's thing, that uh, popular entertainment has the capacity to corrupt the masses, and it was a it was a kind of very snobbish idea that basically suggested that poor people were like robots who just do what they you know they just see stuff and they react. Okay, 
Um, that exact philosophy and idea is now predominantly expressed by those on the left. It's a weird shift. It's difficult to, to determine when exactly it happened, but you'll notice that all, all calls for sort of artistic censorship or criticism, which is saying, well, why hasn't this film uh, got more diversity or representation or why why has why is this film sending a negative message about women or a negative message about about gay people or whatever it might be and when of course the role of art it has absolutely nothing to do with messages or morality uh, necessarily not not that art can't have a moral message if it wants to but uh, it always puts me off when it does i find it quite rebarbative as a as a, as a form but you know um, this is now coming always from The Guardian, always from the New Statesman, always from the leftist publication. This is just where it is now. Um, this very haughty puritanical approach, uh, these, this pearl clutching would be the, the, the phrase. It's a very good phrase, isn't it? Because you really imagine people going, oh, you, know, uh, you know, very camp, very kind of, you know, oh, this person said this rude, disgusting thing. Um, it's just shifted and it will no doubt shift back again. You know, uh, every now and then you get it from the right, even now. You do. You get it from when 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 certain uh, creative people do something that is considered offensive, and, and you'll get that. And that will always happen. It's just for, it's just a strange phenomenon that at the moment uh, the, the the ones who would seek to shut down forms of expression tend to be on the left. And of course, that is largely down to the new social justice movement, which mistrusts at its heart mistrusts speech and sees speech as violence and conflates the two things. Uh, and pretty much everyone within that camp, I mean, there are there are disagreements along the way, but pretty much everyone is of the view that language has the capacity to normalise behaviour and, and, and that people do follow these mechanical cues from these mechanical linguistic cues. Um, and ultimately, that's down to a, a mistrust of humanity and particularly a mistrust of working class people. That's what you'll find, which is why they often go after working class comics, uh, because it's the audiences that are dangerous. They won't go after a middle class comic. Uh, talking about various things because you know they're better educated audience they understand what they're doing you know it's it, there is a deep very patronizing isn't it this sort of odd incredible paternalistic like kind of overbearing like nanny like neo nanny state in a really bizarre way there was an article uh when the dapper laughs you remember the dapper laughs con controversy me, yeah the, the, is where, he still around i have absolutely no idea but that, they succeeded in having his tv show booted off uh, I think it was ITV2, um, and there was a really alarmist, ludicrous article online talking about how his show was a rapist's almanac they used. I don't think they used that <laughs> word right, correctly. Um, uh, but it was absolutely insane. And um, actually, the whole article was hilarious because he'd obviously gone through his thesaurus and just tried to sound as learned as possible, but actually, by doing so, came across as incredibly unlettered. Um, but, but when he um, wrote this article... And, and people, but it wasn't just that he wrote the, I mean, you can have some maniacs writing articles about this sort of stuff, but so many people bought into it. And even comedians I know signed this open letter saying we should have this band. It was a, it was a weird moment. Although I have to say some of those who I know who did that now uh, regret it. Um, but of course, the idea, it was really because Dapper Laugh's audience were working class. And this idea that, that they would watch him picking up girls and being being a cheeky lad or whatever i mean look it's not to my taste i don't i don't even know what it was really. i watched a bit of it and i thought it's not for me you know but but i don't think for a second that some uh, working class guys are going to watch it and think all right i've got permission now to go out and commit some sexual assault incredible incredible this this it is just patronizing isn't it it is just a fear of 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 people who aren't like you it's it's because believe it or not it doesn't matter what class you come from everyone knows the difference between a joke and real life and even if it were an outright instruction, 
to behave badly. People don't. People do have agency. They do make decisions. You know, they, they, they don't just do things because someone tells them. But this is a belief that you can't. Actually, we can't get over because it's so ingrained now. It's everywhere. You know, it comes down to even in, in Parliament when Boris Johnson was using the metaphor of the surrender bill and you had all these Labour MPs saying that your language is normalising violence. People are going to hear you using military metaphors. Well, politi- political language is full of military metaphors. Conflict. We, we go on to fight. We need strength. All of this sort of stuff. But it's interpreted as incitement. Right. Well, again, this is based on a very patronising view of, of humanity. It's not true. Did you see Miley Cyrus drop herself in it with a preference remarks showing underlying transphobia? I didn't. Why don't you fill me in on that one? I'm not up on my Miley Cyrus Well, let me tell you. This is in Out.com by May Rude. Not sure if that's a real name. So this is this is the gay press. Is Out.com the gay press? It will. Well, it sounds a bit gay. (laughs) <laughs> That's uh, Only yeah, you I, can say that. Uh, Miley Cyrus is making waves with new comments about her sexuality. In a new interview, she not only says that she prefers women to men, but also attempts to explain why. Girls are way hotter, we know this, the 28-year-old bisexual said in an interview with Sirius XM's Barstool Radio. Everyone, I think, can agree that from ancient times, dicks make wonderful sculptures. Other than that, I'm not as interested. I like dicks as art pieces and sculptural. I love the shape. I think it looks really good on a table. The singer continued, It's good if I can just get it in and go away because I don't want it eyeing me up. That's how I truly feel. I really feel good about saying that. She dug in even deeper, adding, Everyone knows that tits are prettier than balls. That's what ended up making female relationships make more sense to me. And then this cuts back to May Rude. I wish that I could say this news makes me excited and proud to be a woman and a lesbian, but Cyrus's quote is littered with transphobia. This kind of gender essentialism was left behind by most of the queer community years ago. Genitals do not equal gender, and Miley should know this. And then it just keeps on going in an age where TERFs are more vocal than ever. People like Miley believe that genitals determine gender. Trans women and girls are often considered to be in public spaces. Trans women should be kicked, blah, blah, blah. This isn't the first time she's gotten in hot water. She seemed to imply that being gay is a choice. I don't think that Miley meant to traffic in TERF talking points, but the fact is she did. And should know better, the stakes are too high for someone with as big of a spotlight on her as accidentally spreading this sort of rhetoric. Miley, I love you, but I'm going to need you to make this right. And I'm sure that Miley Cyrus really took that to heart. I'm sure the incredible entitlement of that kind of article is is insufferable, isn't it? And it's um, uh, not only actually did I read that, I, I tweeted about it. So when I said I hadn't heard of it, it's because I, I read this stuff every day. That, that It could have I, been I, anyone talking about anything. I mean, the, the idea that if you find breasts more attractive than a scrotum, uh, that is a, a turf viewpoint, a, a tra- a, a, you know, that phrase is just ludicrous anyway, turf, um, a, uh, that it is in some way transphobic. Uh, you, you see this all the time, genital, genital preferences are, are transphobic. No, they're not. They're obviously not. But I shouldn't have to say it. It's obviously not the case. Uh, that, that is true. I mean, and, and also the idea, <laughs> listen to what she said in the article, the queer community left this behind years ago. Most gay people have genital preferences sorry to break this to you the vast majority you've clearly never been on a cruising ground i tell you what because it's it is very very much about the genitals and don't you tell me that suddenly people are blind they're blind to what what is in the what is in the underwear department they don't care are you kidding go on grinder that's all that's all they care about 
Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the um, <laughs> the funny the funny thing that I saw there was it was like, the we talk about grievance hierarchies, right? It was like the hierarchy of different things that she'd done. So I kind of had it in my head. I could imagine this kind of like quite haughty um, foreman working, like looking over a building site. And he's like looking and he goes at feminism, women, yeah, check. Lesbian, yeah, women, check. Oh, we're looking good here, mate. Oh, oh you haven't. You yeah. haven't quite got it right. You didn't quite get it right on the transphobia, did you? I'm going to have to. I'll give you. I'll give you a B minus, and uh, you can hand this in at reception, and we'll see if we can get you back next week. Do you know what I mean? You're like, it's like some it's, sort of it, calling card. I mean, for one thing, like it's such a shame we even have to discuss. Like the article sounds banal, doesn't it? It sounds. Why do I care what what, what Miley Cyrus thinks about tits? I don't care about that. It's so. It's really not interesting. I've. I've. I, I can pretty much guarantee I've got no interest in anything she's got to say. But that is. That really. Uh, that really takes a bit. So why am I even having to talk about this? Well, it's because journalists uh, are picking through, sifting through everything that people say, and trying to find some way to turn it into a, an offensive comment. How boring! What a boring existence this person must have. And you did know. you see Jordan Peterson's interview with Decker Aikenhead from the Times, and then the subsequent yeah. write-up? Yeah. What were your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, I didn't see it all. To be fair, I so I, I saw Michaela's um, re- response to it, and um, I mean it was quite of. I mean, uh, but, but the, the the snapshots I heard because I heard some of the recording, and I could tell that this was a hit piece. Even even before reading the the final, I could tell that the the there was there was something about the smugness of the tone and the kind of combative nature of the interview that you knew that this person had already decided in advance what they thought about this situation they were going to say what they thought about it and then having read uh what 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 actually happened um yeah i mean it's it's a it's a it's a hit piece that's what it is it's it's someone who is not going in in good faith and i think it's it's the wrong way to go about an interview if you're going if you if you're serious about being an interviewer you need to sort of coax out some truths about that person or, or get or get them to reveal some things about themselves not use it as an opportunity to smear someone and particularly with someone like Jordan Peterson, who, let's face it, has probably been mischaracterized more than anyone else, except for perhaps J.K. Rowling. Uh, the two of them are, are right up there as people who've, who, you know, when you see the level of vitriol against them and the accusations that are thrown against them, you know, particularly with Jordan Peterson, who is someone who isn't even really that political, um, all of this stuff is weird because you read it, it bears no resemblance to reality. And this is what I'm talking about when they say about arguing people who are capable of argumentation. Someone who is willing to just completely mischaracterize and not provide evidence for their mischaracterizations. You can't talk to that person. It's like talking to a madman. There's no point in debating someone who's 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 literally in, in, in living in their own reverie, their own vision of what the world they would like the world to be. And that's unfortunately where you are with someone like that. I've been in discussions with people online about J.K. Rowling talking about all the transphobic things she said. And whenever I said, can you quote me something transphobic she said? They never can. Well, I mean, and the fact at, that they never look, can. Look at Jordan Peterson. Same thing. Same thing. Right, exactly. Same precisely thing. the same thing. Um, you, well, uh, it, in in a sense, it's worse because uh, you have you have most of his old lectures are online. So you have a, a, a verifiable record of a man whose opposition to tyranny in all its forms, including Nazism, uh, could not be better documented. So the idea that then you can then say, oh, he's supportive of Nazis. It's 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 so it's not even something you can debate because it is just so fundamentally the opposite of the truth. There's no point in getting involved in that, you know, so it is infuriating. But that's the point which you have to say, no, right, I'm stepping back from this conversation. This isn't someone 
this the, the, the problem is that so many of these people who are, who are living in this hallucin, hallucination uh, of, 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 of a society of a world are pretty prominent commentators uh, and interviewers for various major newspapers. So it's it's it, it's it's frustrating because you have to. I suppose what I'm saying in short is. The adults just need to start talking to each other and let the kids you know, have their little tantrums and let them get on with it. But the adults need to talk to each other. I mean, you think with someone like Decker Aikenhead, who's like lead invest interview reporter or whatever for the Times, you think that she would have been one of the adults. And- I don't know much. I, to be fair, I don't know much about her, but I think I'm perfectly prepared to concede because of my lack of knowledge of her work that she is actually a, a very sensible, intelligent journalist. And on this occasion, she allowed her passion to overwhelm her reason. Uh, I mean, that is a conflict that that lives in the heart of all of us. Um, and, and we are all likely to to fall prey to it if, if we have a, a particular bugbear about something or if we are uh, if we have. I mean, all of us at any given time have false, false perceptions of the world. The, the key is never to lose sight of your, of your objectivity. And I think uh, but it but but it is undoubted, undoubtedly the case that in that particular interview, uh, she didn't behave in a professional way and let herself down, and the result was a, a poor piece of journalism. Well, I mean, is the interesting thing there, talking about freedom of speech, not that she is permitted to write that swath of unrepresentative, maligned, um, very preconceived ideas about a man who, 15 minutes into the interview, has to take a break to go and cry, in yeah. 15 uh, minutes in, breaks down, talking about how other people have been positively affected by his work. And the only reason that we're even given any notion of that is that Michaela had the foresight to actually record the call so that they can then put it up to the seat. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Didn't she say something in the interview about how he's not in touch with his emotions or he doesn't have any emotion? There was something in there relating to... It was, It was. yeah, it was, it was obviously... Well, that's the thing about... Peterson in particular as well he's, he's obviously not a confrontational combative person no right he, he really isn't and this this um view of him as someone who's who's in it for the fight and gets sort of gets off on on the fight is is is, is palpably not true yeah. and everyone I, mean, I know who knows it's not true look at what he's saying during the very very first set he breaks the fourth wall he obviously thinks at least stepping in that this Decker lady is on side in one form or another. And I'm going to guess that having been through the sort of hell of all of the rehab and the trips around the world and all that stuff that he's had to do, they'll have filtered this very, very, very carefully to think, right, are we going to be okay? Is this the sort of thing that dad's up to? It's obviously going to be worthwhile. It's the times, it's reputable, it's blah, blah, blah. He's got the new book coming out. And he breaks the fourth wall early on in that and says, "Um, every time that I have one of these combative interviews, um, I have to take a rest afterwards almost. I feel sort of physically drained once it happens. So he's saying yeah. to her, look, like I know that you're sort of not a part of that. And then slowly over time, obviously that hope just gets chipped away. Yeah, man. I mean, like Michaela's a good mate and uh, I really well, feel like that family just, like if anyone's had enough, like really after the, the last the problem, year. The problem is that that because so much of of I hate thinking in terms of sides, but I think I, I just see so much evidence of of those who are, you know, completely enamoured of this social justice ideology. They're very quick to dehumanise people. They're very quick to demonise. I mean, that they to the extent that they don't care if people die and will gloat if someone dies who doesn't agree with them. And that that 
that to me is an inhuman way you've lost your humanity as soon as you start doing that you're not really a human being in any serious sense in terms of your uh, emotional capacity you're you're like a, you you've you've made yourself you've made yourself ironically into the the, the a sort of a version of the person you're projecting um onto these other people and and that is very sad and i think the the, the willingness to the sheer cruelty of someone who who can see someone who's obviously been through serious medical problems and yet you want to kick them when they're down is uh uh it is actually unfathomable to me i don't i i, I can't imagine it, i can't imagine I, ever getting myself into the sort of place ever ever where that well, would, would be the sort of thing man like that type of journalism that sort of like very i don't know like if you if if piers morgan lost 50 iq points and was 20 years ago like that's the sort of that still kind of like playing the heel but with absolutely no charm to it with no sort of goodwill that's the sort of person i don't know what decker aikenhead looks like but i imagine that it's kind of like a, a younger piers morgan with a wig and like a little bit more frumpy I, I, I... I don't know what she looks like. I, I, I thought she was older, though. I thought she was she might more be. established. Um, I, I don't know, to be fair. But um, I suppose what what I think it is is... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depresses me when I think about the way in which people allow themselves to become these yeah. monsters, which, which is what, you know... Yeah, unless you have empathy, empathy's got to be the bottom line. Unless you... Unless you and I, I think because identity... Politics has become so tied to identity now that it means that if someone is uh, challenging your worldview, instead of welcoming that, I mean, you should, you should welcome it. And instead of welcoming it, you, you, you see that person as a kind of, as someone who is the embodiment of evil, someone who is therefore threatening uh, your, your identity, who you are and, and committing violence simply by disagreeing with you. Then it's very easy to, to, to get yourself in a situation where you can, you can see that person as less than human and expendable. And, uh, and that is really at the heart of cancel culture, isn't it? This idea that we, you know, if we could just get rid of these people who think differently than us, because, well, something that Peterson himself talks about is the way in which when you are challenged, it feels painful uh, and you get this shock of awakening and, you have, and it's, it's a difficult process to be open minded, to be a free thinker, to challenge yourself and be challenged by others. All of that is really difficult. Um, but rather than accept that actually this is a positive form of growth, you know, that that, that kind of those mini form of destructions are a positive thing for yourself as an individual is to get rid of and eliminate any possibility that it could happen it's tied up with the whole idea of the safe space culture the idea of not, not being challenged and not being um, exposed to ideas that might make you uncomfortable what they mean by uncomfortable is challenge you make you a better person make you a more interesting and well-rounded person uh, we have to in a sense start from scratch all of this stuff has to, you know it means the universities the schools everything's got to basically start from scratch again um because at the moment we are in this in you know this wilderness of tigers where uh, where there's no sensible discussions going on everyone's out to hurt each other no one's wanting to listen uh they're just having their own individual scraps with imaginary enemies it can't go on forever does cancel culture exist it it's incredible to me that anyone would deny that it exists when the evidence is so overwhelming for it um i've i've been in conversations with people about this online and there's a couple of threads online which have hundreds and hundreds of examples of of people who've lost their jobs uh out of um for something they've said at work or something that's uh, you know 
of course it exists. I mean, quite obviously, I think, you you know, the, the, the main complaint of saying, well, no one's been cancelled. Again, that's someone taking a metaphor, literally. No one's saying that anyone is literally being cancelled. Cancel culture is a shorthand metaphor for a, a form, a method whereby when you hear something that offends you or upsets you, typically something quite innocuous or relatively inconsequential. In other words, part of cancel culture is an overreaction, right? So so you go in all guns blazing and you don't stop until that person has lost everything, their livelihood, their job, their reputation. Absolutely, it's all got to go because there can be no redemption. There can be no forgiveness. And this happens again and again. And the examples of it are so numerous that it is impossible to deny with a straight face that it doesn't exist. And yet people do, you know, it's for this, it's the same reason. I mean, you know, people I hate to say it again, but writers for the guardian will continually say cancel culture doesn't exist because they are its chief practitioners. You know, remember this is a publication that when Suzanne Moore wrote that article, which they all disliked, most of the staff wrote a letter of complaint to try and get her booted out. And then it's the same people who will say that cancel culture doesn't exist. Well, let's not, well, this is hardly surprising because the culture war is largely engineered and motored by people like, the people who work at the guardian it's their culture war this is the identitarian left's culture war but they are the same people who will say the culture war is a right-wing myth but they're the, they're the antagonists it's it's nuts but you know, J- so- jk rowling said loads of stuff she hasn't been cancelled why is she not being cancelled well you know the answer to that chris let's <laughs> she's a billionaire and uh as we all know cancel culture overwhelmingly affects poor people and this is the other major myth about it. You know, if you're a celebrity, put someone in the public eye who is financially secure, uh, it's very difficult to cancel. You know, you can't cancel J.K. Rowling. She's the richest, richest author in the world. You can, however, cancel Gillian Phillip, who's the Scottish author who tweeted in support of J.K. Rowling. So she lost her publisher and she lost her agent. That can happen uh, because she's she's expendable. You can't. No publisher in their right mind would get rid of J.K. Rowling. So, no, she cannot be cancelled. But that does not justify the the, uh, the venomous misogynistic abuse she gets on a daily basis. I mean, that's still on a human level, just morally unforgivable. However, she she isn't subject to cancel culture. I will accept I will accept that. And um, the ones who are subject to cancel culture are normally people who don't have the means to stick up for themselves, who don't have the financial resources to do so, who are intimidated because they go into work and suddenly they're facing a tribunal because someone overheard something they said and and, and misinterpreted, misinterpreted it. This isn't about someone who's gone into work and starts shouting about faggots and puffs and, and, and uh, how they should all be killed and stuff. That's the way it's portrayed. No, it's someone who made a joke that someone's misinterpreted as being homophobic because it hurt their feelings. And so they went and, they, you know, it's a different thing. And it may not even have been about gay people at all. Right. It's the, the, the key aspects of cancer culture is that the slight is actually often very small. Right. And also it's po- it's possible. I mean, there's um, a lot of people now talking about how we should we should not have call out culture. We should have call in culture. And actually, it sounds a bit tacky, but there's something in that insofar as if you're in the, the workplace and someone says something that upsets you or offends you, you call in, you go over to them and say, look, what you said bothered me a bit. Can we ever talk about it? And you and you resolve your things that way. Calling out would be screenshot the email put it online let everyone know that this person is evil and should be fired and hounded and that's quite a good distinction to make because that's what we used to do i mean i i've had disputes at work you know i used to be a teacher i used to work in a call center i've had disputes with people uh and i've took them to one side and said can we discuss this and sometimes i've been right and sometimes i've been wrong but you get you reach a resolution because we're human beings and we can deal with conflict and there's no such thing as a human relationship that doesn't that is devoid of conflict um but if if my initial reaction was always, I want to see that person fall, I want to publicly shame that person, I want them to suffer. That's not that's not justice. That's revenge. 
And I think that that's what that's what is at the heart of this. And then what we mean by cancel culture is this general propensity to seek vengeance for a perceived slight that may or may not have been a slight in the first place. It may have been just you, the way that you perceived it. That's what cancel culture is. And it happens all the time. So we need to, again, go back to what I said, start from scratch. The idea, things we shouldn't accept, uh, that the culture war is a right wing myth, uh, that cancel culture does not exist, uh, that anyone is calling for uh, free speech without any kind of consequences or criticism. None of those things are at all true. And yet they are stated as though they are true. And this comes back to a, a problem that we face. And they gave us a word for it, didn't they? The word is gaslighting. That so many people on the identitarian left loved gaslight. They will love, they will happily say to you, this is a thing that is happening when it is not happening. Or this is a thing that's not happening when it plainly is happening. They will just deny observable, observable reality uh, and they will keep denying of observable reality so that you start to doubt your own sanity. That's what gaslighting means. It comes from the film Gaslight, you know, where the guy is constantly lowering the lights and his wife's saying, why is it getting so dim in here? And he's saying, it's not, it's just you. You know, so that's what they that's what they do. And yet again, they accuse others of gaslighting because that's what they do. How far do you think we are from thoughts being a crime? Like, Is there a significant philosophical or symbolic difference between thinking a thing in your head and making the noises of that thing with your mouth? Well, everyone should uh, has a responsibility to think carefully about the things they say, and they, they should choose... But do we have to think carefully care. about the things we think? No, you can't. Uh, it, nobody can afford to express their every unfiltered view. That's why we have a, we have a filter. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, how could that be? That? Our minds are very complex things. We, we are continually wrestling with difficult ideas, and everyone has thoughts that they would not express. Um, but that's the, that's the point of socialization. That's why children sometimes say the most awful things, you know, because <laughs> Hilarious just, things, yeah. they just come out with it. And they say sometimes really offensive and upsetting things because they don't have that filter and they don't have that sense of social responsibility. And that's something that we learn when we're socialized. Um, the idea of criminalizing someone's thoughts. I mean, of course, it's uh, horrific and it's the stuff of dystopia. That's why dystopian writers such as Philip K. Dick always wrote about that kind of thing. Whether it's actually happening, is that your question? Whether How far are we from it yeah, actually happening? Yeah, the, so the, the interesting thing that I've found is that certain groups of people would sooner have a lying ally than a truthful opponent. So they would rather yeah, someone yeah. make the mouth noises that they don't believe and essentially be unreliable. Like, they don't know what that person's going to do. They're evidently not being themselves. Or even if they don't, they're perhaps making themselves willfully ignorant of their deception. Yeah, yeah. Rather than someone who maybe isn't an actual opponent, maybe they're just slightly adjacent to them, or maybe they're not fully on board, but is being wholly themselves and is being completely truthful. And that, to me, I find that fascinating, how someone well, I is think, prepared to take deception as long as it's deception on my side. Uh, uh, oh, well, I think, though, the view that deception is preferable to the truth. I mean, there's this thing that they call preference falsification is when you, you say what you think is the... Uh, the, the most popular view, not what you actually think, the thing that you're meant to say. The, the, that's the phrase. It was it was coined by an, an economist, and I, I'm, I'm gutted, I can't remember his name, but you can look it up, preference falsification. It's very important um, because I remember talking to someone who had been on Question Time and they or wait, or no, misremembering, someone who knew someone had been on a Question Time panel. And they said that they'd had this discussion with all the politicians and the journalists, and then afterwards in the green room, They'd all sort of said, did you really think that? No, I don't think that. And they all agreed that they actually thought the opposite. Um, but they knew that they had to give the, the, that to say Very the right thing. Very performative sort of com conversation, well, that, yeah. That, 
that's a, a fairly standard thing in politics. I mean, you know, politicians are always having to, to, to toe a certain party line. The, the, the problem is that now, like you say, um, we're, there are all things that we're expected to say, even if we don't believe them. And I would urge everyone never to say something you don't believe. I think I think uh, it's self-destructive to speak knowing falsehoods it, it is, is really self-destructive. Not only that, it means you don't know anyone. People don't know each other. I would rather know what people actually think. But I think the reason why, particularly the social justice left, would rather they lived in a world of liars. Firstly, I think it's because a lot of them are liars themselves and they, they are willing to be colluding. They like they're in, in good fantasy. company. Well, I guess it's just a kind of sense of the means always justify the ends. I think that's really what what it what it's about. Um, but also, I think additionally to that, it's about this idea that it's about their belief that language creates reality. It's that postmodern belief or that that everything that happens in the world is down to the words that are expressed. Um, and as a result of that, if you have opinions that are, uh, shall we say, objectionable, uh, and those opinions are articulated. Then they're out. They've escaped like a like a poison from a lab, you know, they're, they're like a, like like a virus. And therefore, what happens is that changes society and poisons and infects society. And I think they genuinely believe that, uh, as opposed to the truth of it, which is the opposite of that. Which is that if you hear objectionable ideas out loud, you are able to engage with them and explain why they are wrong or expose the people who are expressing it. All the other things that, which is how progress works. It's why. We got over slavery in the 19th century through discussion and debate and people wrangling with these then very difficult issues, but issues now that everyone, there's a, a complete consensus on, right? You don't reach that consensus without discussion. When when I hear of um, people attempting to criminalize, particularly with the trans debate, trying to attempt to criminalize the language that people use, misgendering, that kind of thing, or compelling speech as Canada is now doing. When I hear that, I think you have learned nothing from civil rights movements. You've learned nothing. The, the, the gay rights movement never did this. They never suggested we should criminalize people who, who, who used words about gay people in a certain way or didn't accept uh, gay equality. We never had that. We had debate, protest, and we had uh, we even had ridicule and we had discussion and, and, and persuasion. Above all, we had persuasion uh, and it worked. Now, you, you won't find many people who are against equal rights for gay people. But the, the, the ones, the residual elements are tend to be very religious. Uh, in fact, so again, you reach it, you reach progress is achieved through open discussion and uh, progress is stymied uh, when people misrepresent their own thoughts uh, for fear of uh, the, the tyranny of the collective of the of, of um, the, t the, 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 you know, this, this what you would call peer pressure. Where does the N word fit into free speech? Recently, we've had this 67 year old New York Times writer, Donald McNeil, fired for referring to the N word. Isn't it weird that if he was a rapper and he'd said that, it would have been fine? Was was the context of that that he was quoting? I believe there was a recent was example referring of someone quoting. To, referring to something right. else. Yeah, so I guess he's well, one, look, one level removed from saying it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the truth is that we all acknowledge that when I say that words and violence are two different things, I'm not saying that words don't have power or indeed that words don't have baggage. And when you have a word that is so uh, associated with uh, the evils of, of, of slavery and a, certainly a word that is favoured by racists. There's no getting around that. Um, then obviously, this is what I say about, you know, people should think before they speak because they should think not just about what they are saying, but the, but but, it, but how, it, how it is received. That's why clarity is always important. Um, so uh, having acknowledged that, then you have to talk about the intention of why the word is being uttered. If you're quoting from a text, if you're teaching of mice and men, 
by Steinbeck, in which the word occurs frequently. If you're teaching Huckleberry Finn, although, of course, a lot of people aren't now because they they say it's a racist book because it contains the word. Well, context is absolutely everything. Um, you couldn't the, the book. And let's take Mark Twain. Let's take Huckleberry Finn. Right. The book wouldn't work if that word was not there, because the work is a satire against it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a book which is pro racial equality. It is against those people, those hypocrites. Because you'll notice that the hypocrites in that novel are the adults who believe that they are Christian and good and righteous, and yet they endorse slavery. And it takes a child to see through the evil of slavery. Right? That's the point. And and that doesn't work if you sanitize the reality of what life was like for someone like Jim, for a character like Jim. Right? It doesn't work. So to say that the book is racist simply because of the presence of a, of a word that many people find offensive is to completely divorce. Uh, mis- firstly, it's a complete misinterpretation of what the text is about, but it's also to empower a certain word with this uh, undue weight and say that the word in of itself is an evil word. Well, that's that's almost talismanic. That's almost that's almost that almost invested with the kind of significance. Words are all about intent because they're 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 how we express our ideas about the world that that isn't. I think we should be very wary uh of an overreaction however having said that and and for all my urging people to to speak with care and to not go out of their way to hurt other people's feelings if if you've decided that you want to use the word for whatever reason that's up to you it is not for me if i heard that someone someone using that word or any kind of racial slur authentically from a place of racial hatred then i would know that's not the sort of person i want to associate with and i will remove myself from that situation pretty quickly or i will say something you know, if I feel I can, if I feel I'm not going to get beaten to a pulp, I would probably say something to that person. I would complain. Um, but if it's someone in a classroom quoting a poem, <laughs> didn't it happen when someone was quoting James Baldwin? An the, academic was the best. The best example I've heard was a teacher teaching Chinese to Americans, and there is a word in Chinese that sounds like the N word. Right. And he's oh, trying. He's trying to teach them it. Phonetically, it sounds like that. I think it's maybe like CG or two Cs instead, um, but right. it's, it's it's close enough. Um, okay. Also, I mean, even just the fact, like, I, I get it, that, that word is loaded with baggage, and I have nightmares about accidentally saying it sometimes on a live stream or something. Not that I, It's a word that I don't think I can't remember using because I'm so terrified that if it gets into my lexicon somehow that it might just right, sneak see, out at a really inopportune you're time. You're not a rap fan. You're not you, a fan of rap. No, well, that's the thing. That's the other really fascinating thing, that if you're a rapper of any any racial descent, you can say it. If you're a rapper, you're allowed to say that word as many times as you want. If you're Cardi B, it can be the majority of one of your songs. Yeah, but again, there's context to that. There's context to the the, the genre. But there was no it? context to Donald McNeil referring to it on a bus. Right, that's my that's my point. It's it's always got to be about it's always got to be about context. Um, but this is why I say the the bottom line should be anyone should be able to to say what they choose to say. That's it. And if they say something that's offensive and and even horrible, then then you you then we have a decision to either criticize them back or to remove ourselves from that situation. That that's the way it's got to be you know i mean um, donald donald mcneil was allowed to say it it wasn't like yeah, was someone, allowed, someone yeah. came in with a big set of jaw clamps or something and was like no you're not allowed to finish the second syllable of that word um yeah what we shouldn't stand for is is then this this decision that he's a racist 
Could be, because although I'm not familiar with the case, from what you've described, it's someone quoting he's clearly not a racist. In fact, it, it was probably an anti-racist point. It often I'm not is sure. So there's some, there's some accusations of other things that he said on the trip. And if they're true, that kind of reframes this. But it doesn't really seem like there's as much evidence. And then you think, well, it kind of feels like that's being thrown in after the well, fact. It's just, it's so like messy. Say, we have so little because, trust. We have so little well, trust. I I don't know uh, because I don't know about the specifics of the case. Let's let's take the example of a teacher who is teaching James Baldwin and uses the word because the word is in the text. Right. We should not stand for anyone accusing that person of racism. It doesn't make sense. There's absolutely because if you're going to accuse someone of racism, you're going to have to have more. Uh, you have, have to have more evidence than he's just quoted a text. It's not enough. Right. It's 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 outrageous. In fact, I think he would be um, probably in direction of his duty as a teacher if he didn't if he didn't quote accurately. Right. And often in order to make a. A, a, a point even in opposition to racism like i say with the mark twain example the book doesn't work without in other words a book about racism which is critical of racism won't work if there's no depiction of racism in it is it it's just not going to work right and these people have no idea about art i remember reading um there was a feminist book called cunt uh written <laughs> Is that funny? I'm sorry. <laughs> Just the fa- I love that sentence. There was a, there was a fem- <laughs> there was there was a feminist book called Cunt. Yeah, back in uh, uh, the 80s, I think it was, and the subtitle was a, a Declaration of Independence. Um, and I read this book at the or not in the 80s because I was a child. <laughs> I wouldn't. Know, I read it in the 90s. Um, and um, there was a moment in the book where I, I I just flinched because it was talking about how feminists should go and watch films at the cinema like Thelma and Louise. And when there's a rape scene, they should stand up and scream at the screen, shut this down. This is disgusting. How dare, right? In other words, any depiction of rape uh, is an endorsement of rape and creates rape in society, right? And I remember reading that thinking, no one thinks this. This is extreme, extreme stuff. No, and I knew a lot of feminists and none of them would have gone along with this. They'd be like, well, that's just stupid. That's just thick. Because there's a difference between endorsing rape and depicting it on screen because actually when you're depicting it on screen more often than not you want it to look bad because it's a bad thing it tends to not glorify it, it yeah quite quite but now that idea is mainstream that's the norm you see something depicted in a film who was that there was one critic saying we need to call out david lynch for his violence against women he's not violent against women he's depicted violence against certain women he's also depicted violence against a lot of men probably more but that's not what you notice, is it? And and this idea that artistic representation is the same as the thing, I, it, it blows my mind because what it, it, it's someone who is so politicized, they don't understand art. They don't get what art is. They don't get that it's, the word art means artifice. It is a false representation. It is not the actual thing. That's what art is, right? You know, if you take a scene like the scene, the rape scene in Irreversible, which I can't watch, to be honest, I watched it once and I, 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 would, I could never watch it again. It's so brutal, so vicious. Um, it's an extended, it's about a 10 minute scene of the camera doesn't move and it watches this rape in an alleyway and it is unbelievably upsetting, but it's meant to be. That's the point, you know, it's not saying, look how exciting this is. It's saying, look how fucking horrible this is. And that that's the point. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't do well actually to represent horrible things as though they're okay. And as though they're just, you can just get on with it. Right. It's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, and it, it's this incredible misunderstanding. So when I read that book, I remember thinking, well, no one's ever going to get on board with that. This is, and, and I can't believe that that idea has won out. I can't believe it, that now that is, that is the way most, not maybe I'm, 
having my mind skewed because I just read The Guardian all the time. But a lot of people in power think that now. They think that artistic representation, representation in film <clears throat> uh, needs to send a positive message. Uh, it's it, it blows my mind. You've got this quote in the book that I really liked. It says, history does not look fondly on the hubris of those who appoint themselves as arbiters of permissible speech and thought. Their authority is only ever contingent on the wisdom of their time. What do you reckon that future humans are going to look back on this time and think? It will be fascinating. I think I have absolutely no doubt that this this will be a weird uh, blip in human history, right? I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, I'm living it. And I'm also very aware that, of course, we never know uh, how future generations will perceive. Uh, but my God, it feels weird enough being in it. <laughs> You know, yeah. it, with all of the context like, and all of the upbringing and all of the understanding yeah. you know, you read the article today about how people, men need to stop wearing ties because it's a phallic symbol of white supremacy and you just think well uh you know uh, that's become normal to me now i see that sort of thing every day it shouldn't by the way that should always be a, like what the hell is this kind of moment who's reading this rubbish mainstream newspapers guardian again um and you we're living it it's everywhere um I think ultimately in a hundred years time or so people will look they will they will see it as a, a pocket of hysteria. This was a moment of hysteria that that people lived through uh, where everyone just started denying reality. Everyone just started saying the ACLU started putting posts out saying there is no advantage whatsoever to being born biologically male when it comes to sport. That just simply doesn't exist. Just statements of untruth and they call them facts. Do you notice that? I don't know if you saw that thread. No. They call them facts. Oh, the ACLU, the the American Civil Liberties Union, which has basically become a uh, uh, an identitarian activist group now, put out a list of facts debunked. We're debunking the myths, uh, and one of the myths they debunked was the idea that um, uh, there is any biological difference between men and women whatsoever. That's a myth that they're just debunking via Twitter. So well done. Uh, but you see, I think historians will look at that and say, okay, so there were all these people saying observable falsehoods and stating them with such self-assurance as though they were fact. Well, religious zealots, in other words. Um, and um, and this was not only did this happen, but governments and businesses and corporations and HR departments and the police and t schools and teachers and universities echoed these same falsehoods. And everyone colluded and pretended that they were real, except for the majority of people who were standing there saying, what, what's going on? None of this is real. Why, why are you creating this fantasy land that we have to occupy? But that's what happened. But the powerful people sustained the illusion for this length of time until suddenly a thing called democracy won out. Until the Doyle, <laughs> until the Doyle party finally took over and rose, rose to prominence, bearing, be bearing their pitchforks and their rocket grenade launchers idea that i would ever go into politics I, i've had a number of people suggest it to me I, I never no 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 not at all well, everyone, why don't you start one no the chris no, williams party mate i've i've done far too many party drugs to be able to ever but in fact actually that might be what gets me in maybe that's maybe that is my routine maybe it's allowed i think it's allowed these days isn't it because mo most of the major politicians have admitted to uh, some sort of drug use over the past fair enough so yeah, that might I be think it I mean, I, I couldn't do it because I was a stand-up comedian. Still am. I, notice I use past tense there. It's because I'm in lockdown. I'm, <laughs> in, um, Pre-COVID, I used to be a stand-up comedian. But, but you, well, there are no stand-up comedians at the moment, are there? But if you, um, if, 
you know, you could go through my old sets and take a quote out of context. You could do that with any comedian, you know, and you know what politicians, they get such scrutiny over absolutely everything they've ever said. But that's not the real reason I wouldn't do it. The real reason I wouldn't do it is because I couldn't do the lying thing. I couldn't, you know, if you're part a member of a party, you have to follow the party line on certain issues. And I couldn't be in that position of not saying what I thought. I can't a, do that. I'm a terrible liar, like absolutely awful. And many of my ex-girlfriends will attest to that as well. You'll notice I said X yeah. as well there. Um, what are your thoughts on Trump being removed from Twitter? Like, Is that a freedom of speech issue? So the uh, the question of big tech censorship, I suppose, is, um, well, firstly, we have to bring the argument up to date. So when you talk about how a lot of people say censorship is just the the prerogative of the state. It's something the state does. That's a, a, an argument that's completely out of date, about 20 years out of date. Uh, the big tech companies operate this oligopoly. They they have um, they dominate the predominant mean the predominant public forum, the pro- predominant means of communication. They have more collective power than any nation state, but they have none of the democratic accountability that comes with it. Um, we have to accept that they are in a, a unique position. If you're going to say to me um, that it is it is fine for them to, to determine the parameters of acceptable speech uh, on, on when they not only do they own all of the major platforms for speech, they will shut down any competition in its nascent form, as we saw with Parley. You know, so, so, so they'll say, go and go and set up your own platform. Someone does. They shut it down. Right. So this is not you know, this is the reason why we have antitrust laws. We have it for a reason. We, we you know, when when certain uh, uh, small groups of companies dominate a market, there are measures put in place to address that. I don't see why it should be any different um, with big tech. I think the um, when it comes to Donald Trump specifically, it is it terrifies me, actually, that that uh, these un- unelected billionaires can uh, decide whether we get to hear from an elected president. The, the leader of the free world. That's a terrifying thing. The last people that should be cheering on the power of multi-billion dollar corporations is anyone who is authentically on the left. Because to be on the left means that you don't support those people, by the way. Sorry, this is sort of leftism 101. Read a book about this stuff. It's not difficult. You know, it's in, it's absolutely nuts that this would be the case. Uh, that uh, No leftist thinker going back beyond 20 because leftism has become dominated by identity politics. Now, none of these people are really left wing, but, but go back, you know, even not even that long ago and people would have laughed out loud. You went to a socialist meeting back in the eighties and said, yeah, we need Google to, I know Google didn't exist, but the equivalent of Google to, to stand up for our, to, to look after us basically to be our parent. Do you think, um, do you think that he would no have been way. removed if he was still going to be president for four years? Well, I always thought they were going to actually wait until he was out. And I knew they were going to nuke his account, but I thought they were going to do it like the day after he was out. I think that it just goes to show how brazen they're becoming. I mean, they they, they now believe that they they are more powerful than the president. They believe they're more powerful than, than politicians. Now, look, it's a straightforward thing. And you'll always hear the, oh, well, it's a private company. They can do what they want argument. OK, well, you know, that while that is uh, technically true they absolutely can i suppose they could also decide to not allow gay people on their platform if they want i think they should face robust criticism if they decide to do that and similarly they should face, face robust criticism when they are editorializing on completely partisan lines let's face it that's exactly what they are doing so they they do need to face uh not just criticism there needs to be um more than that and i think the way you do it is they frankly because they are now behaving like publishers they should not have legal protections that's all it is. They, if they're if they're going to be publishers, then they're like every other publisher, like every other media outlet, a newspaper, they are responsible 
for the words that appear on their platform. End of story. Because every time Twitter gets sued for a libelous thing that's there, they say, well, we're not a publisher. We're a platform. We're not responsible for what we put out. Well, just just change that. Change the rules. Change Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And the way you could change it, because obviously, you know, that act was set up because of the proliferation of comment sections on news sites. It can't, it's, it's unreasonable to expect anyone to be responsible for everything they fail to remove in a comment section. That's really unreasonable, right? So you need to have those protections. So why not just change that law uh, so that they're not, that they're responsible, so that it doesn't count for illegal content, say. So in other words, uh, they can't be held responsible for, or libelous, libelous or illegal content, uh, rather than giving them license, as it currently does, the way it's phrased, they have the license to remove anything that just they just disagree with that, or offends them, right? No, I think as soon as you're di- removing content because you politically disagree or because it offends your personal sensibilities, as happens all the time on Facebook and Twitter, then you are most definitely a publisher. You're editorialising, end of story. So I think that's the point at which we need to have some prote- some changes to the law, you know? So by all means, if Twitter wants to say, look, we're a private company, we're opposed to free speech and we will only allow these opinions. You can't have these other opinions, which is effectively what it does anyway now. You know, for instance, gender critical feminists are routinely booted off um, because because Twitter just doesn't agree with them. Right. Well, if you want that kind of uh, platform, then say what you are. Just say what you are and be honest and open about it. Don't pretend that you're for free speech, which they're not. Do you reckon Trump will run in 2024? I mean, I hate predicting the future because I always get it wrong. No, you like, always get I'm... it right, mate. Every t- the only the only thing no, that you've no. ever predicted on this show that you got wrong, I think, was oh no, you actually you, pre- you, pre- you said that Biden was going to win as well. Yeah, so you did. No, get but I, I I think no, I'm I, I I'm happy to predict, but I'm no mother Shipton. I'm, I'm I don't Cassandra think Sandra over right. here. Look, I think no, I I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought so. No. I, I mean, I, I could elaborate on that, but I just. I just don't. I don't. I don't think he's got the necessary support now uh, within the Republican Party. So I just don't think he would get the nomination. But who knows? Who knows? My inclination, as two Englishmen talking about American politics, which this mm. channel gets gets uh, criticised for, yeah, an absolute I think, I think lot. American followers get really annoyed by this. Yeah, don't they? they hate it. Well, I mean, I, I put a video up with Carl Benjamin, uh, the YouTuber formerly known as Sargon of Akkad, the other day, talking about uh, AOC. And someone right. commented, someone commented and said, "Why are you two Brits always talking about American politics?" And I was like, "Well, it's because it's far more interesting than ours. Like the closest thing that we have to AOC is Diane Abbott." I mean, you're you're very close to the whole "stay in your lane" argument, there, aren't you? So we're not allowed to take any interest in world politics. That that's ridiculous. And what's the harm? You know, maybe we get it wrong. That's all right. Maybe we, you know, maybe we get it completely can't wrong. Vote for, but can't so vote for it in any case. The um, my, my favorite my favorite thing that I've heard around this social media freedom of speech thing is freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of reach. It's like because it rhymes, somehow it's, it's got true. it's yet yeah. some somehow it's got more veracity to it. Yeah, it's either rhyming or repeating. Repetition is the other one. Have you seen the the UN women? The UN women account keeps putting out these tweets that are just what was the one they did the other day there is there is no wrong way to be a woman there is no wrong way to be a woman there were eight times it's like well i wasn't convinced by the third time (laughs) by the fifth i I was being persuaded and then by the eighth i'm like oh yeah man you've nailed it you know if persuasive rhetorical documents from the history all they were were just repeating the same sentence over and over again until they wore you down into submission i mean that's jack nicholson in the shining that's not a serious argument that's uh, all work and no play makes jack a dull boy 
You know, it's it's insane. It's either it's that or the cla- it's the clap emojis, isn't it? If you put the clap emojis, clap emojis in between each of the words, that's I love that. That's hard hitting. All, all the full, all the full stop after every word. Serious, you know, very, very, uh, very serious. It's, yeah, it's not an issue at the moment because no one can leave the house. But why shouldn't people protest against speakers that they don't like? Uh, they should. I don't have a problem with that. Why shouldn't um, they petition to get them removed from the university or the campus or the, the wherever? The, 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 the problem I haven't—I haven't got a problem with protest at all. I think I think uh, protest is a sign of a healthy democracy, and you should be able to protest whatever you like. My problem is people capitulating to protests that are clearly asinine, right? So if 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 I, for instance, say I don't want this speaker on campus because he eats meat and I'm a vegetarian, and it will therefore normalise the killing of pigs. Right. If I say something as ludicrous as that, I would expect the university authorities to say, OK, you're, you're free to have that opinion. But shut up now, because we're not going to listen to it. We're not interested. Uh, but, you know, go and have your protest, whatever. Um, but it's the dema- it's it's the it's the threats. It's when protests uh, literally prevent people from speaking, as in they sound fire alarms or they prevent the event going ahead or they threaten. And therefore, the cost of security become prohibitive. These are these are that's where you are preventing someone else from speaking and that's the distinction i don't have a problem with anyone protesting at all i think that, uh, i think the sort of protests i had in mind was when was it steve bannon went to oxford to speak and there was essentially like a human wall of people in front of the entrance that stopped like i said like, like i said the distinction is clear uh peaceful protest i'm all for any form of protest that turns violent i oppose no matter who is doing it and for what reason and any uh measures that prevent other people from making their own informed choice right so if you if in other words because what you're doing is if you form a wall to prevent people actually to prevent the event taking place you are acting in loco parentis you are deciding on behalf of your peers what they can and cannot hear that's not for you to do what's loco and so i oppose that in loco parentis in place of a parent it's a poncy way of saying that um but (laughs) it's um but basically you know, that's what I that I think is that's when you are threatening free speech, you're, th- you know, and, and that's when you are acting like an authoritarian, because what you're saying is my particular view of the world is the only one that matters. And that's the opposite of of, uh, of a liberal democracy and what it stands for. I've got my favorite passage from the book, uh, and I'm going to read it out here. In an age when lived experience is often valued more than objective truth, the core tenets of liberalism, due process and free speech are bound to be at risk. Lived experience is what we used to call anecdotal evidence, a fallacious form of reasoning that has misled many into believing that ours is an essentially oppressive society, overrun by fascists and undergirded by white supremacy. Needless to say, those who whose lived experience tell them that this worldview bears little resemblance to reality are quickly discounted. It would seem that lived experience only matters if it is of the approved sort. Good, good words. Andrew. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, because that is something that troubles me. And it's something that I've already gone into with you before about, about uh, uh, you know, firstly, the inherent contradictions of the movement. So if you're going to say that objective truth doesn't matter, and all that matters is people's lived experience and perception, in other words, um, then you're going to have to take on board everyone's perception, aren't you? Or what you're really doing is you're saying that, uh, no, what I meant was people who, whose perception agrees with mine. And then it's a different thing, isn't it? So there's the, the inherent contradiction within it. But also the idea that we can just discount objective truth. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's so opposed to basic enlightenment values 
of reason and scientific inquiry. It's 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 absolutely nuts. I mean, yeah, there are people who will say that homeopathy objectively works because I had some of that course and I got better. But you see that we don't make these sweeping statements on the basis of that, do we? Because that's not a sufficient study that it worked for you. Right. That's not that's not that's not sufficient, is it? Um, what was the Darren Brown show where he, he did the uh, the horse racing, the system? Have you seen that one? No, the, you, you should watch it. So it's an hour long show called The System where he basically uh, uh, he shows you uh, this process by which he, he, he picks a member of the public and he feeds them the information of which horse is going to win a race. And he does it five or six times and it works every time. Impossible. Right. And then he shows you how he did it. And I won't tell you how he did it. But it's a similar it's a similar thing, because all we're seeing is her experience of winning every time. And we're not seeing what's actually happening, which is a much bigger picture that you might even be able to guess from what I've just said, Um, because we cannot honestly watch. It's great. Um, We cannot we cannot base our perception, our conclusions about reality on our experience of reality. Okay, because if we do that, chaos reigns, as the fox said in Antichrist, you know, we we sorry, that's a bit of a niche reference. I just love that film. You've seen the film Antichrist yeah it's the last one true you know the bit where the fox speaks and says chaos reigns it's so chilling i love it anyway um where was i sorry i'm getting confused no, you just uh, i um, love every time that you're on for some reason we seem to have like really apocalyptic references i think i first ever introduced you as like twitter cracking and crumbling beneath your feet as you as we, <laughs> as we started the episode it's always so apocalyptic oh, well, under um I'm drawn to- under a biden administration do you think mm. that it's better or worse for free speech what's your predictions there or what's your what's your sense i know that you don't like making predictions i think it's worse i think it is worse so this is the uh i mean trump had his blind spots on free speech which we should never be he was not very good on press freedom for instance i think if he if he could have had his way he would have uh been quite happy to shut down his critics and muzzle his critics i don't think there can be any doubt about that i think the risk with biden is that he You know, I mean, I remember having a lot of discussions before the election and a lot of people who were voting Biden were sort of saying, well, you know, these fears that he's going to be a woke person. He was voted in because he's the non-woke candidate. Right. That's why we don't have we don't have Elizabeth Warren in the White House because wokeness doesn't win votes. Let's face it. You know, Uh, this is why Kamala Harris had to drop out the primary so early because she she just wasn't popular. Um, And so. You know, all and then and then a lot of people would say to me, you know, well that that it's a it's a false fear, but then within two days, a number of the executive orders are specifically woke executive orders, and you think, oh, hang on a minute, this is a bad thing. W- wokeness and and the opposition to freedom of speech go hand in hand. Uh, uh, they just do because because as I've said of this belief in uh, the uh, power of language to to form reality, and that's really what it's about. Uh, so I don't think. Firstly, also, I don't think Biden and his administration have any appetite to address the problems of big tech censorship uh, because big tech is on their side at the moment. You know, it's very myopic because if, if you go into the you know, they should be thinking long term here. Um, they don't want to set these kind of precedents. So there's that. Uh, there's also a movement, as you know, in America to have the, 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 the First Amendment changed, amend the amendment so that um, hate speech is not protected speech. Uh, but of course, hate speech as a formulation is just, as I say in the book, it's a kind of fudge uh, for, to, to, to deal with uh, or to suggest that speech that you don't like is not subject to constitutional 
protection. That's all that that is. So, um, which is why I argue in the book was one of the, the arguments that I imagine is going to get me in a bit of trouble is that I think all hate speech laws ought to be repealed and that there is no place for hate speech laws on any statute books in a liberal democracy. Um, and I think uh, under Biden and his administration, the problem of hate speech is going to get worse, as it seems to be in this country a little bit. You've got the Law Commission pushing pushing now for, for further hate speech regulation, when what they should be doing is dialing existing legislation back, and they're going the other way. The SNP, of course, in Scotland, under Humza Youssef, the Justice Secretary, who, as far as I can see, is a kind of maniac, who thinks that you should um, uh, prosecute people in their own homes for things that they say. I mean, this is properly authoritarian stuff. Like even a lot of people on the left are like, oh, hang on a minute, this is too much. You know, this is, uh, it's 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 scary stuff. And um, the, the problem is we need to, I was talking to a politician about this the other day. We need to find a way for politicians to be brave enough just to stand up and say, because it sounds like you're saying, I want everyone to be able to be hateful. I want everyone to say hateful things. And you're not saying that. You're talking about a much bigger picture about free speech and about the fact that the state has no place of deciding what its citizens can and cannot say, because that way tyranny lies. So it's going to take a brave politician. It's, it's always it's always takes a degree of courage to defend free speech, because what you're doing is you're defending the rights of unpleasant people to say unpleasant things as as a corollary of what you're doing, inevitably, because speech that isn't controversial doesn't require protection. So it's difficult. Um, and that's why I emphasize in the book that if you're defending someone who's saying something that's utterly reprehensible, you should also make the point just strategically, just make the point that you don't agree with what they're saying and you find it reprehensible. Be clear, because otherwise people will use it against you. They'll do it anyway, by the way. You know, I mean, like, it doesn't matter what you say because people will just put words into your mouth. That seems to be the norm now. People will just decide what you secretly think. You know, you saw this. the other God, Owen Jones tweeted the other day that he was saying that um, the reason why GB News is so popular can be explained because everyone who supports it has this fear of, of uh, is a reactionary who has a fear of progress. So what you've done is you've just decided what's going on in the minds of all these millions of people about a program that doesn't even exist yet, that you've also just decided what it's about. It's this insane degree of entitlement. I think it's I think it's demented. The, I mean, the idea that you, you, you think you know what's going on in anyone's heads is 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 is, you know, on the face of it, absurd. But to just casually diagnose millions of people with your cod psychology over twitter <laughs> i can't imagine being that entitled that narcissistic for god's sake you know just before i'd sent tweet i'd be like i'd be thinking ah oh, should i should i say should i be advertising the fact that i think i'm better than everyone else and can decide on their behalf what they're secretly thinking should i tweet that or should i have a little bit of fucking humility well not everyone has that the thing that i can't get out of my head is I, I i don't meet people like owen jones or anybody else i don't meet a decoration head i don't meet these sorts of people that say these sorts of things despite having met an awful lot of people but newcastle seems to filter out the maniacs in in quite a good way no one that's wants it. to come this far yeah i think i don't know what it is you have so, your own kind of maniacs though that's correct yeah that is very true <laughs> um and the thing that i always think i always excuse it away in my own head by saying it's just for clout because now things that are sort of inflammatory and cause response, they garner momentum. And that this, I know that that can't be true. I'm that's a, the best faith, uh, like potential that their words can have is that they're just using them and they don't believe them. Because if they believe them, this is a whole new magnitude of ridiculous foolishness. What you're doing there is you're trying to make sense of the inexplicable, and that that's an understandable instinct. It's a noble um, pursuit, right? 
It is noble. And you're also giving them the benefit of the doubt, weirdly, by suggesting that they're maybe being disingenuous. You're saying they can't be as maniacal as they seem. Uh, so that's actually quite a positive thing that you're doing there. But unfortunately, I, you know, I, on the other hand, do like to take people at face value. And I and I, I, I believe that people mean what they say unless proven otherwise. So I'm going to assume that they, they do believe this. And that is a scarier world you're in there. I mean, that is that is that is a frightening place. Although I do notice that in conversation, such people rarely say things that are that unhinged. They, they, they tend to reserve them for for Twitter or, you know, so I don't know what that tells us. Um, uh, but I, you know, I hope you're right. I hope I hope it is just a game uh, and that they don't seriously believe what they say. I hope so too. Free speech and why it matters will be linked in the show notes below. Have you got anything else? Is there anything else happening in the world of Andrew Doyle at the moment? Well, just, I'm, I, you know, because it's lockdown, I go for walks every day through fields and, um, you know, I don't know how to use Instagram. I don't know if I've said this, I don't know how to use it. So I just post pictures of what I see on my walks and they're normally sheep. And it occurred to me the other day that I think people think I've got a fetish because I just post pictures of sheep on Instagram. Okay. And it's not. That. So if anyone does follow me on Instagram, that's not the reason. It's just that I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to reply or do anything on Instagram. And if I'm out in a field and there's a sheep, I'll take a picture of the sheep because I quite like sheep. Um, so don't get the wrong idea. If, you, if that's all I'd say. Cool. Um, so new book, new book out and a caveat around the sort of images that people can expect to see on your Instagram. Those are the two main announcements that, that we've got. That's the, well, I'm not doing anything else because I'm stuck at home. So I'm only writing or walking and there is nothing else to do. So uh, I wish I had more exciting, exciting news. That's, for you, that to me is a wonderful way to finish an episode. Andrew, it's always a pleasure to have you <laughs> on, mate. I hope that we get to see each other again properly at some point. But for now, we'll continue doing this over the internet. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>